Hello and welcome to Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I am your host. Renoites is a podcast where I talk to local folks from my lovely hometown of Reno, Nevada, about all kinds of issues from politics, culture, art, music, anything that's going on in this lovely city. I am really excited to talk to some of my neighbors. My first guest on the podcast today is Bob Conrad. You might know Bob as the editor of thisisreno.com, our local news website. If you're not a subscriber to This Is Reno or if you have not checked it out, I strongly recommend that you go to thisisreno.com. Sign up for their daily newsletter. They have all of the headlines sent out every day. I'm really glad to support some local journalism, of which podcasting, I suppose, is a form. So thank you for joining me today. And without any further ado, Bob Conrad. I guess to start, I would love to tell you a little bit about the the concept of the podcast. This is a new podcast. I'm calling it Renoites. Uh, it's a long form interview podcast. I feel like that's something that I really enjoy listening to is interviews that have enough length to be able to cover a variety of topics and kind of delve into issues. I think a lot of the the podcast world and a lot of news is is much shorter. It's like people want their information quickly. So it's, you know, hit the talking points. If you have guests, introduce them, tell them what they're about, and then, you know, talk for 10 minutes and then that's it. But I really enjoy personally just being able to get into a conversation with someone. So my hope is that this podcast can be both an opportunity for me to have an excuse to talk to a bunch of people in Reno who are doing interesting stuff and also kind of delve into issues and have more you know, thorough conversations than just like hitting the top points. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I, I had a, a very similar, uh, the early iteration of the, this is Reno podcast was, was pretty much that I don't, I'm not even sure those episodes are still up online. They should be hopefully, but I think like our first 40 or so episodes were, were like that, you know, where I interviewed, I tried to do subject matter experts, but it, it ended up, I was getting clobbered by public relations <laughs> requests, and I ended up just kind of dropping the whole thing after a while. It was sort of losing a little bit of traction in, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you started before This Is Reno, the site, or was that part of the launch of This Is Reno? Kind of where did that fit into the like the This Is Reno story? It fit in about five years into thisisreno.com. So when I think I first started doing a regular podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, the the main thing I want to talk to you about is this is Reno, because I think it's really interesting that we have a local news source that the news world has become so national, you know, especially in the last few years, like everything is a national news story with the increase in cable news. I think a lot of viewership on the television side went away from watching the local news to watching, you know, the national pundits. So this is Reno is kind of a important part of the, the news puzzle to have an actual city specific local news source. So what, what made you create This Is Reno? Like, what's the story of This Is Reno? Yeah, well, that's a, a great observation. We saw in the, the mid-2000s, slightly after 2000, so about 2006, that the sources of local news were getting decimated, not just here in Reno, but statewide and nationally. The model of news, as, as you mentioned, has been very network-driven. And that in my opinion, really takes away from on-the-ground local news reporting. It's not to say that network-based news doesn't do, doesn't cover local issues. Of course, they do, but that's not their sole focus. So what I've seen increasingly in the last five years is corporate chain 
type news outlets uh, that that still to this day dominate our market increasingly seem to package their their news stories for a more networked audience. So you're going to see, for example, uh, stories coming out of Las Vegas, but getting published here. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, in the process of doing that, you end up losing, in my opinion, a significant amount of effort being placed into local news. So when we started in 2009, originally we were just running a lot of press release content. And then as we were able to afford it, we started paying student interns and then we as volunteers on the site started crafting our own stories. I was working full-time at the time for the, for the uh, state of Nevada. And um, eventually what happened in, in 2015, so I guess about six years in, we, I uh, left the state, state employment and ended up working full-time on this as Reno and then doing side work, part-time side work, which I maintain to this day. So even though I work full-time on This Is Reno, I also work, you know, half-time and, and also still maintain some client work. But I think you're correct. The, uh, the emphasis on This Is Reno is going to be just primarily Reno news. We've, in the last year or so, uh, had access to a lot more statewide coverage, which has been very beneficial. So we're starting to do a little more of that. Although I did launch in March, very quietly, a new state-focused news website called NevadaState.News. And so that has, in the last approximately year now, started continually growing, and we're running content there from the AP. We're publishing some of our This Is Reno content there. We're also republishing Nevada Current articles on that website. And I think what you'll see, if the trajectory continues, you're going to start seeing more original statewide reporting on that that website. But This Is Reno will not change too much. Although we are we, we are always changing to some degree. We're always evolving and, and things change. You know, it depends on who's who's with us at any given time. They bring sort of their own voice to what we do. We're not really an abnormality. In fact, you know, if you looked at the, you know, the old days of, of American journalism, the 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 model of what we now call hyperlocal, although that's not a very good term in my opinion, really was what uh, American journalism was founded upon. And, you know, contrary to what uh, some people believe about journalism currently, it, it was back in, you know, our, our founding fathers, uh, very much advocacy journalism <laughs> uh, back then. And a lot of it was really homegrown. It was focused on a particular community. Think of like the Nevada Appeal or the Territorial Enterprise. Those were local and regional papers Nevada Appeal is still around, but they, they really focus on their local community. So we're not an abnormality. And in fact, there is a professional organization of which we've been a member for about five years called Local Independent Online News Publishers, Lion Publishers. And the whole goal of that organization is to really foster and develop local independent online news for people all around the country. We may even have some international members too. At our conferences, there's been people that, that have come from, I want to say maybe South America and, and uh, Norway. Um, don't quote me on that. I, I, I know, I, I remember uh, meeting a, a group of Norwegians at one of our conferences. So this whole idea of local independent online news is really, in my opinion, it really harks back to the day of, of really early American journalism. So I would actually argue that networked journalism, networked news is really the abnormality. It, even though we, we sort of accept it as being the norm, which it has been for a number of decades, 
it really, in my opinion, is not consistent with what we as a country have experienced in, in terms of journalism. Do you think that the the trajectory is moving more towards the local news? I mean, you say that there's this, you know, there's a big organization, there's a lot of local news sites like yours. Do you think that people are paying more attention to local issues or is there kind of a fatigue with the the national model of everything being national news story? What, what do the local people care about and like kind of what draws people to a local news source instead of instead of the network and national yeah, I do, well, I do think the trajectory is changing. In fact, I know for a fact that it is. Uh, it, just in the last, I want to say, three years, we've had uh, four. Let's say four years, we've had the Nevada Independent, although it is statewide, uh, but it is lo- you know, in theory, local, uh, independent, and online. We've had the Nevada Current come up. Carson now has been at it for about ten years, but just in the Reno market, we have. Recently, Double Scoop, which is an arts-focused news website, as well as Sierra Nevada Ally. And those are two examples, in my opinion, of exactly what you're talking about. So those outlets, I'm assuming, I, can, I don't want to speak for them, but, you know, knowing Chris Wagner and, and Brian Bay, who, who run those sites, you know, I know that they have seen the dwindling uh, local coverage and kind of have stepped in to fill that gap in those needs for the community. Yeah, I think a lot about not just what what websites people use or what kind of news sources people have, but how people get their news a lot, especially with social media now. And I find that a lot of times when I see this is Reno content, it is on Facebook. I'm trying to get away from social media generally, but I think a lot of people get their news from social media. So how does how does this is Reno as a website kind of fit in with the news via social media structure? Do you find that a lot of your traffic comes from social media and Facebook? Do you have a lot of direct... I know you have a newsletter. I subscribe to the daily newsletter, so I get the headlines there. Where mm-hmm. where are most people finding this as Reno? And how do you see the social media side and kind of this these new forms of distribution as... Is that a permanent part of local media now? Are there other ways to reach people? What, is, what do you see the kind of big picture there? Yeah, those are great questions. And and really, those are issues that I think about a lot. You know, the big debate since I've been doing this full time is how much do you want to rely on Facebook? And I I will definitely call out Facebook because they are both a uh, burden and a big driver of local news. But just uh, the other day, I saw a discussion online about a local news website that, that literally just dropped Facebook altogether, just stopped publishing on Facebook. And about nine months in or whatever, uh, notice virtually no change in their operations or, or um, traffic. I'm not there yet. I don't know if we ever will be. I will say that most of our traffic still from day one actually comes from Google. It is our top driver, which means that organically we are appearing in searches pretty highly for relevant terms related to Reno. And and that's something that I have put a lot of time and thought into. Even though, yes, we publish to social media every day, multiple times a day, Google is still our biggest driver. Another area that I'm seeing a huge amount of growth in is an app called Newsbreak. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It is a, a company, I believe it is based here in, in America, but I want to say it is originally... No, it is based here in America. I remember the CEO came and gave a presentation. Newsbreak is is basically taking aggregated feeds and 
filling its app with that. We are actually an official partner with Newsbreak, and increasingly they are within our top 10, if not even top five drivers of traffic to our website. In fact, Nevada State News in the very near future will be basically funneling a significant amount of our content into Newsbreak as part of an ad revenue share. So do you see that as kind of a future a future model for a lot of local news sites to kind of network uh, and provide content to news apps that are outside of the like Google, Facebook sphere? Because I feel like when I think of Google News, I think of like the, the news Google page that uses algorithms and stuff to pull mostly national sources. Um, do you think mm-hmm. that news specific apps that you have direct relationships with are a, a big part of the future of local journalism? I'm not sure I can say for the future. I can't predict the future. I can say that right now they are, Newsbreak in particular. There's another one out there that I I can't recall off the top of my head, and and I forget the name of it, but some people have had some luck with it, but we're not a part of that. So yes, I would agree that they are currently a, a big player, at least for us, and even will be hopefully generating some revenue for us as well. But I don't, I mean, I don't think Google's going to go away and I don't think Facebook is going to go away. Twitter is not a huge driver for us. I think it's in our top 10, maybe top 15 refers, but really it's uh, Google, Facebook, Newsbreak kind of in the top. And then uh, a huge growth area for us right now, we're just about to hit 10,000 subscribers to our e-newsletter, which is major for me. And it's also very expensive. <laughs> but that, I mean, you think with a single email, we can we can drive, you know, 2000 hits easily to a single article. And that is huge. And, and that bypasses Google, that bypasses new, Newsbreak, that bypasses, you know, all sorts of things. So that is going to be a huge growth area. Text-based alerts is something I've thought about, but I'm not there yet as far as exploring that. But, you know, the idea, and it's kind of an existential crisis for news organizations, is like, do you want your news out there? And then what are you doing to, you know, how much control do you want to have over that process? I tend to be kind of laissez-faire. You know, if if people want to share our stuff, let's say on Nextdoor, and by the way, I've never been on Nextdoor. I don't even, I, I have never downloaded the app, but I know we get shared on there quite a bit. That's fine. But for me right now, and at least for the past 11 years now, the website is still kind of our main portal for all of our news, even though we get shared all over the place. Gotcha. I think that um, one of the things I appreciate about the local aspect is that you you cover stories that you don't hear in the national news, like stuff that is national ideas. Like I read the article yesterday about the the RTC buses and the bus drivers having concerns about people getting on the bus without masks and this is a you know it's a it's a public safety issue and it's related to coronavirus and it's a national topic that has direct local implications so i i appreciate that that we get to hear the how the things that are happening nationally actually affect us in our own backyard and i don't think you get that without a local news source you know like the cnn's not reporting on the the reno bus drivers I, I'm laughing. Uh, be, well, I'm laughing because a that story is just so bizarre to me. Uh, d- just the the level of of acrimony between the two parties in that story is is astounding on on one level. But the fact that, to the best of my knowledge, that story has n- not been covered at all, at least not to the degree that we've covered it. And I find that absolutely shocking that you have two major groups conflicting that have a, a significant impact on the population of, of Reno, particularly the working poor population who, 
you know, have to ride those buses. And why are some of our major networks not, not covering that? It's, it, it just boggles my brain. It's absolutely, I mean, it, it, it's almost like some of these news sources have just turned their backs on, on our community. It's, it's very strange to me. And, we, and I could cite probably easily a dozen examples like that in the last year. And I've, and frankly, I've been told, you know, I, I've been told that, that some people are like, well, this is Reno's going to cover it. So we're not going to cover it. You know, so that's, that's strange to me, but okay. <laughs> hmm, that is interesting. So by kind of like filling that gap in the, the local news area, it is kind of given permission, you think, to other news agencies to just be like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's our approach, but we're not a major player. I mean, like if Sierra Nevada Ally or Carson Now or Nevada Independent cover a big relevant issue, we will likely, if we haven't been working on it, we will probably not cover it. But to see a major network adopt that stance is very perplexing to me. It's almost like a, a concession that there's a little bit of a defeat in in the ability to cover local news. Like they're, they, you know, they've just realized that they can't do it and they're not going to do it. So, yeah, it's very strange to me, but frankly, it's good for us. It's, it's very good for us. Yeah. Do you think maybe that there's some upside there because you are a Reno expert? So having local experts covering the local issues seems to maybe be a, a good thing rather than, you know, you can't have these major networks and, um, working to cover all of the smaller issues in all of the medium-sized cities like Reno. So having local experts who are from this community who know Reno inside and out probably results in in better and more thorough reporting if someone's doing it, right? Yeah, and what I see is a lot of, uh, let's say, you know, some of the broadcast and, and even, uh, well, again, the corporate-owned news entities seem to hire, presumably at very low wages, younger journalists from out of market that then have to come in here and, and quickly learn about stuff. But then, frankly, they miss a lot because they don't have that institutional knowledge. You know, the RGJ is notorious for, uh, in the last 10 years, for basically getting rid of most all of its senior reporters. You know, how that serves the local community is, is a huge question. But they lost a lot of institutional knowledge, whereas ours seems to be growing. So, yeah, it's a big problem. You know, when I see like, like, I, I can't even keep track of the new reporters at the TV stations because they come and go so quickly. You know, they're here for a year or two and then they're gone. I, I don't watch the local news that much because I don't have a TV. I'm of this generation. I think a lot of people are that we don't watch live TV very often. If we do mm-hmm. watch TV, it's something on, on Netflix or, or Hulu, whatever it's streaming. So the, the live six o'clock news is no longer the main news source. So I think that we've kind of lost the the local coverage in broadcast TV for most people of my generation. And uh, when I do listen to a, a regular newscast, oftentimes it'll be in a podcast format, like the PBS NewsHour or whatever has a podcast. The local news doesn't have a daily, you know, listening experience for their show. So I think that that is one of the the things that we're missing is on the broadcast side is are we moving away from live news broadcasts in general and what is replacing that as people's news source? And that's something I kind of wanted to ask about too. You mentioned that you had a podcast as part of This Is Reno. You have a website, things get shared on Facebook. What do you think are, are, are people shifting how they consume news in different formats? And what do you think, uh, is there, st- obviously there's still a lot of value in, 
in regular length articles on a website that people can share on Facebook, things like that. But do you see people, um, what was the response to the podcast? Do you think that podcasting is a way that people are actually getting news? It's how I get a lot of my news now that I'm trying to not watch so much TV. Um, and a lot of people are consuming news in much shorter forms too. Like, uh, I think a lot of people basically get their news from, from tweets. They read the headlines and that's the extent of their understanding. What do you think the direction is or for other types of news consumption besides the physical newspaper and the six o'clock news? Well, I think uh, newspapers are going to be gone or virtually gone very quickly. I mean, we saw in March of a year ago, the R&R folded. They're, they're back online publishing, I think, two stories a week or something. So I think print is the, the future is not with print unless you have a very specific niche product. You know, Edible Reno Tahoe is, a, I think, a great example. They're doing, to the best of my knowledge, they're doing well. They sell subscriptions. They have a very aggressive advertising platform. So they're a very, very much a niche print product. Yeah, I think you're going to continue to see this sort of, you know, bifurcated system of people consuming their news via Twitter, not necessarily clicking into the article. I saw one figure, I haven't validated it, but I, I saw one figure that about 70% of people who comment on Facebook news articles don't actually read it, which is astounding to me, but it's also not surprising. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought up podcasts. I think podcasts are absolutely wonderful. But, you know, when COVID-19 started, I was doing a weekly just of, I think it was like a five or seven minute segment. And I stopped doing it eventually. Mainly, I'll just, I mean, I'll tell you the, the amount of time that goes into producing even a seven minute podcast, I could easily be writing and editing, you know, maybe three stories in, in that amount of time. So the, the payoff, as it were, there was really no payoff, was that the you know, few hundred people that listen to the podcast is really dwarfed by the amount of people that would read the article online, which could easily be a thousand, if not, you know, 10,000 or 15,000. So in terms of consuming content, it's not for us the best way to get stuff out there. I think uh, doing a niche podcast, like um, the, I don't know if you heard the city podcast that Anjanette Damon worked on and that was very well done. And I think that was a very good example of a sort of a niche focus on Reno, focus on a particular issue, put out eight episodes and then you're done. But you got to keep in mind that took a year to develop that or maybe a year and a half, at which point she wasn't doing any reporting. And, you know, our city council coverage and county commission coverage is very spotty around the community. Whereas we, this is Reno, covers just about every single county, or I know we cover every county meeting and just about every city council meeting. It's, it's rare that we don't produce at least one story off of a city council meeting. So we're watching those very closely. In fact, the one on Wednesday, we could have easily had four stories out of. We've had two. I may be writing one more just based on Wednesday's meeting. And school board. You know, we cover everything. Just, yeah, every school board meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that we got some kind of national attention with the, the City podcast. And I listened to it and I was really impressed by, you know, the storytelling and the production. And I think one of the things that goes into creating a podcast, and this is something that I am trying to figure out because like I said this is the first episode and I'm trying to kind of figure out the format is I this is a hobby for me and I the last thing I want to do is be bogged down in in production and editing and and kind of I know that there is a 
craft in creating a quality audio product that's engaging, that's well edited, that is compelling uh, in the way that it's structured and the way that it's created. But on the other hand, that is not my skill set. And it's not really my my interest to be an audio producer. I'm much more interested in in conversations. And I think that there is this challenge for for me as a, a person trying to create something of where do I strike the balance between something that is that's easy and that's fun and that is engaging for me to participate in without turning it into a overly analyzed project that needs to be figured out how do we maximize reach on this and what's the most popular length for an episode and uh, how much, you know, how much music do people want to hear or not want to hear? Do people want an ad break in the middle or do they not? And it's a lot of this kind of analytics around taking something that you think of as a hobby and a craft and a, a, a project and having to turn it into a marketable, monetizable thing. And one of the things I'm hoping to do with this podcast, because it's just kind of a hobbyist project, is to avoid all of the traps of how do I make it sell? How do I make it m- more catchy? Does it need to have you know more hot button issues? I don't necessarily want to have this be like a political debate podcast where people yell at each other, even though that probably is likelier to grab attention. So I think uh, I appreciate the the effort that goes into podcasts like the city of this like deep storytelling. But I do would like to think that there's room as well for something that's a little more kind of hobbyist and uh, a little more naturalistic, I guess, in the the way that we have conversations that doesn't have all the editing and doesn't have necessarily quite the the storytelling. Uh, It's just actual people telling their stories. Yeah, and that's that. In my opinion, that's a, a great model for a podcast. But it, you know, it's going to be very difficult to monetize it unless you're Joe Rogan, right, <laughs> or Howard Stern. You know that that they have that format with you know guests or multiple guests, and those are great. But how do you how do you make that? How do you get that out into the world and make it relevant to enough people to monetize it or make a living off of it? For me, it's it's sort of a cost benefit thing. It's like, okay, well, I can spend a whole day or an hour on a you know seven minute, sorry, a whole day or half day on a seven minute episode, but frankly, I could be doing something else that would really be serving this is Reno in in, in a much better way. That's not to say that podcasts are are bad. In fact, I may end up redoing you know that model tomorrow. I could re you know relaunch it, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, yeah, I think that I'm I'm lucky to have the the time right now to take on something as a project that is mostly for fun and also you know learning experience and a big part of it is I want to get to know Reno better. So I a, a bit about me. I'm from here originally. I grew up born and raised in Reno, uh, but I moved away when I went to college. So I went to UNLV and then I lived in Portland for a few years and I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for a few years and I moved back to Reno a few years ago. And Reno as we all know has changed so much over the last 10 or 15 years. It's like a completely different city. So it's been interesting for me to come back to a city that I'm familiar with on kind of like a basic level. I know my way around. I know, you know, about Reno in general, but I've missed a lot of these changes. So being able to talk to people who have been here for the last 10 or 15 years about what Reno has gone through and what it's going through in the future, that's really interesting for me. That think that what I've been hoping to do with this podcast is just have an excuse to connect with people 
that know more about Reno than I do. So I can kind of become a better citizen of my own city. So I think that there's that, that, that local appeal in having real conversations with people that know a lot about Reno, especially as it's changed over the years. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, this is completely unrated, unrelated to, to podcasting or news or anything is, is Reno's music scene. Cause I, I know you're a drummer and I, I searched and I saw a couple like drumming tutorial videos on YouTube. And I know you've played in a bunch of local bands and my yep. thinking of, of Reno's music scene is that uh, it, I don't, I don't really know. I've never been that involved in it. So I was he- a teenager when I was here in the nineties and then I moved away. And one of my complaints about the music scene or the opportunity for musicians in Reno was that I never felt like we had enough venues. I, I lived in Vegas for a few years and then I moved to Portland and all of a sudden we, there was all these great venues and every band came through. So I kind of wanted to ask you, since you know, the Reno music scene and you're, you know, um, very familiar with Reno as it's changed. How have you kind of seen Reno's music? At, you know, I'm, I'm talking with um, another guest about arts in Reno on an upcoming episode, but I kind of want to hear about your thoughts of Reno as a music city. Is there room for that? Do we have the opportunity to have kind of a thriving music culture in this city? Right now, no, <laughs> but but that that's a worldwide problem uh, due to the pandemic. You know, I would uh, Reno. I moved here in 1990, and and thank you for mentioning my drumming. It's it's a big part of my life that I don't really talk about publicly too often. I mean, I practice just about every day, and I have except for a couple years in between, maybe about. 04 and 08, I took many months off of playing or practicing. But I, since the age of 11 or 12, I've been studying uh, drums. I was even a music major for a semester or two. In my first year in college, I was a terrible music major. But I've been a student of, of drumming for most of my life and an active drummer for a good portion of that, too, in and out of various bands. And, you know, I was in a band in the, in the 90s, early to, to early to mid 90s and uh, well from about 93 94 to uh, 1998 we toured Europe we got to open for Green Day in Hawaii so i got a little bit of a taste of that lifestyle you know we toured the US seven times and various kinds of tours and you know it was a lot of fun i don't think i would want to repeat that <laughs> at my age of 50 right now but you know to answer your question you know Reno always has produced uh, some really great music i mean we've had We've never been like a Seattle or a Portland or a, you know, East Bay or an LA, but, you know, we've had the Mud Sharks, we've had Seven Seconds, we've had, um, you know, there's been some metal bands, Fall Silent, you know, that have come out here and kind of gone national, but nobody who's really gone like super duper famous. So I would love to see Reno become the new Seattle or the new, uh, I don't know where is hip with music right now, but the new Austin, Texas and become known for his music scene. But it's a big challenge because we have a lot of bars and thank goodness we have the Holland project and, and some entities that have done some all age work, but, you know, having a bar culture and expecting that to sort of have a breakout music scene is a bit of a challenge. And, you know, I just my observations of the of the music scene in Reno over the years, it can be very cliquish and alienating for people. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that goes with the territory just about everywhere. But we have some amazing musicians in town, some great bands that come and go. And I don't know, I would love to see before I die Reno just hit it big musically. Uh, that would be just amazing to me. And even if I'm not a part of it, but just a witness, I would I would love to see some local bands just, you know, 
break out and tour the world and become famous and, you know, whatever else and kind of put Reno on the map musically. You know, we have done it to some degree. Like I said, with, you know, Mud Sharks and uh, some of the bands that have toured, you know, Seven Seconds is obviously my favorite pick. I grew up listening to them and, and, uh, they still to this day, even though they've been broken up for quite a few years now, you know, remain a lasting influence on my life. I mean, shit, they toured Russia. <laughs> I mean, you know, they've been all around the world. And, but, it, you know, Warp Tour, you name it, it been pretty much a, a pretty famous band, at least in the punk circles. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. You know, I don't know if that's ever going to really happen to Reno. We're, we're sort of, you know, at least in the 90s, I always felt like we were culturally isolated. It was like the, you know, the mountains to the, the west of us, you know, were a big barrier to uh, the Bay Area in Sacramento. But I remember I used to go to shows in Sacramento and, and Oakland and Berkeley and even L.A. just to see bands that I loved. And, and you had to travel to do that. I used to go see Primus at like the, you know, little clubs in San Jose, <laughs> you know, before they got huge. I saw uh, what became Pearl Jam. They were called Mookie Blaylock at the time, and they played the Cattle Club in Sacramento, I believe, in 1992. And then within months, they were Pearl Jam and just exploded all over the place but you know i got to see them in a little tiny club at, uh, under a different name and it was amazing in fact they opened for alice in chains <laughs> but you had to go to sacramento to do that because you know we're you know reno's not a big stop for touring bands all the time sometimes it is you know that people can go from let's say portland to reno and you know if they can't get a gig in sacramento that night or you know, we get we get skipped a lot and and not having a big venue or, or adequate venues some of our, our larger venues, frankly, they're just not that good for live music. They sound terrible. They're expensive, whatever, you know, so it's, it's, it's a weird scene and it kind of always has been. Yeah. My kind of optimistic hope for Reno is as Reno continues to grow and add population, that's more potential people that want to participate in the music scene and go to shows. As we get more influx from California and from other cities, I think that might kind of bring the cultural side. Maybe there are more people who are in bands. There are more people who play music who, uh, who want to bring that to the city. And then I think, as you mentioned, one of the m major missing pieces is the, the venues is that Reno doesn't seem to have an assortment of venues of the right sizes in the right neighborhoods to sustain, uh, regular, you know, bands touring that stop through Reno, uh, instead of it being skipped over Reno could potentially be a place that bands go to instead of Sacramento. If we had the right venues for it and we had people that wanted to go and I'm optimistic because Reno's growing and adding people from other parts of the country. So I'm still kind of holding out hope that at some point as Reno's becoming a, you know, more diversified from just game, you know, gaming and um, that maybe there's room for growing music scene along with art scene in Reno. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and uh, again, that's my hope. So we'll see if it happens. You know, I'll, I'll keep my eye out and I'll keep playing music, you know, whether it's just in my own practice room, making videos or whatever. <laughs> um, I am currently playing in a band and we don't play out a lot. I mean, we did during the uh, before the pandemic, we'd play about one gig a month, various locations, Shays or Jub Jubs, which is gone now, unfortunately, house parties. You know, I love house parties. Those are a lot of fun. Right on. So you said you've been playing drums since you were, you said 12 or so? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Had what uh, what got you started playing drums? Do you have musicians in your family? I I'm always curious about people who play instruments and who are musical because I I mean I learned piano a little bit when I was a kid, but I've never 
been able to play an instrument well as an adult. And I always really admire that in people that have that, uh, that skill that when you watch someone play an instrument and they're proficient at it, it's just like, wow, how do they do that? So what got you started on, on drums? Why drums? Well, I want to address your point there. I want to, I think it's a misnomer that, that you can't be proficient if you're not, let's say a talented or natural, because I I don't consider myself a natural musician. I see drummers like Larnell Lewis and I just, my jaw hits the floor. I'm like, I have never been able to do that. This dude's been probably playing half the amount of time that I have. And he's just a killer drummer, but anyone can play, play an instrument, you know, whether it's drums or guitar, and you don't have to be necessarily proficient or an expert or a, a, a natural to be a successful um, musician. I mean, I look at Lars Ulrich from Metallica. He sucks as a drummer, but he's been very, he's a very famous drummer. And one of my drum teachers over the years says, Hey, if you, if you can, if you can do that and then do the same thing with your foot in your hand and then do the alt- alternate foot in your hand, you can play drums. I mean, it's really that simple. It's just a matter of putting all those pieces together and, you know, making a beat out of it. So to, to answer your question specifically, how it started, my mom denies this ever happening, but I, re- I remember it vividly. And of course, memories are very faulty. So who knows? But I remember when I was in either the fourth or fifth grade, my mom told my brothers and I, we're a year and a half apart and I'm in the middle. If you guys sign up for band class and stick it out for the entire year, I will get you, give you $20 at the end of the year. So I'm like, cool. I signed up for band. I don't know. I want to say it was fifth, maybe sixth grade. I can't remember, but I, I played trombone. I got my 20 bucks. But during the course of learning to play the trombone, there was these drums happening behind me. And I was like, what the hell is that? That is so cool. I want to do that. So I, I sort of remember it being like maybe a semester into learning the trombone to me telling my mom, I want to go study drums, you know, learn, take some drum lessons because that looks really cool. And that was it. That was, that's how it started. I gave up trombone after, I think, two years, uh, much to the chagrin of my then band director, who was uh, also a trombone player. But he, he, he was adamant. He's like, I cannot have you drop the trombone. I need a good trombone player. I said, nope, I'm switching to drums. He was so pissed at me. But by the time, and he stayed my band instructor all through high school. And by the time I got to my senior year in high school, we were winning festivals. I got like some top awards, you know, we got to travel to like Disneyland and compete and just all this fun stuff. It was marching band and concert band. It was, you know, nothing like super fun, but well, it was fun, but you know, musically it wasn't that interesting for me, but it was just a fantastic experience. And he finally told me at the end of my senior year, he's like, you know, I was wrong about you, Bobby. (laughs) I'm glad you switched to drums. (laughs) (laughs) Made the right decision, right? (laughs) Yeah. Never look back. I don't do uh, musical notes. I just do rhythmic notes. That's all I can do. I, I, can, I, I need I need to use an app to tune my drums. I mean, you know, I just get my tone tone is not there. So, you know, drums are a good fit for me. And it's a lifelong craft, really. You know, it, you know, frankly, it is. I guess you could say, you know, it's a hobby for me, but it's something I've been working on for as long as I as long as I can remember almost my hearing's going. So that's going to probably dampen dampen that over the years, you know, as they come up, you know, but who knows, I might still be jamming when I'm 70 plus. Um, well, I know you said you had to go around 11, so, so I know you don't have that much time, but, um, but I did want to ask you before you go, since this is the first episode, I have a, a handful of guests lined up for my first kind of batch of episodes, but as someone who is well steeped in the world of Reno and, and knows pretty much everyone in town. I don't, <laughs> I have a lot of enemies actually. Oh, really? <laughs> I probably should have asked you about oh, your enemies. Yeah. That sounds like there might be some stories there. 
Well, I just know I get, I get, let's just say I get the cranky, uh, cranky emails and texts every, you know, on the regular, especially during uh, COVID and Trump getting reelected. I mean, we, I had to very start, uh, very aggressively start moderating our uh, Facebook. I, I deleted our whole comment section off our website. Just the, the amount of insanity that was coming at us was uh, unreal. It was just unreal. Just, just bonkers stuff, you know, like people just way out of, and not even here on planet earth, frankly. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish that I had more time with you. Cause I did want to ask you about kind of the, the political aspect of running a local news site. Cause we're close to Carson city. So even though we're not the state capital, we, this is Reno covers basically a lot of state issues because, you know, we're right next door to where decisions are being made. And then also I did want to ask about kind of the, the political aspect of running a local news site, because in the national on the national level, we have these very clear like right wing news sites and, you know, they get called left wing. But I think they're like most of the cable news is pretty moderate on the left side. Um, mm-hmm. But there's this very like partisan tilt to most of our national news sources. And I'm sure it's an incredible challenge running a local news site in such divided political times in a city that is relatively close to like 50 50. And with partisanship as intense as it is, is there a, a, that's a fine line to walk. How do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's honestly one of the biggest challenges. And and by the way, I can go for a few more minutes. I just, I have to be somewhere. So if we need to go for another 15 minutes, that's fine. You know, I, I would say one of my biggest challenges is navigating the, the kind of the push and pull of, of different whims, whether they're political or social, or, you know, somebody says, Hey, you know, you just really didn't cover this story accurately or whatever the case is. It's a big challenge. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. There was a, I was on a panel number of months ago with other local journalists talking about, is there bias in local news? And, you know, we all came away with, yes, there is, but it's not necessarily what you think it is. The bias is in, you know, what stories you select to cover, what sources you select to be the people you quote. So yeah, there's a lot of subjectivity in news. For me personally, I'm a, a registered nonpartisan. I typically vote, you know, pretty back and forth, you know, depending on the the year and who's running. So politically, I'm I'm friends with with conservatives, I'm friends with liberals and I um if you're an intelligent, thoughtful, compassionate person, I I don't really care what your political stance is, but I will say that we have had in the last year or two, a number of, let's say, contributors or people who submitted opinion columns and just really kind of not very good content. And I will, I will say that, frankly, it comes more from the right. And I will, I'll, I'll just call them out. The Washoe County Republicans were submitting op-eds and we said, yeah, we'll, we'll let you run one a month. But then when we, I want to say maybe August or September, uh, we, we realized we were just publishing stuff that was just not true. You know, whether, I mean, it's one thing to have an opinion about a fact. That's that's one thing. But what we were getting were things that were just factually not true. So we started fact-checking our, our columnists and our opinion people. And the Washington County Republicans, the last thing they sent to us was just, it was all Trumpian-type rhetoric that was just not grounded in any reality. We sent them back, hey, can you link us to a verifiable source on these three points here? I, I wasn't involved, but our editor did this. And they just stopped stop communicating with us. So I would love, personally, I would love to have a smart, compassionate, reasonable, conservative columnist 
and a liberal columnist, but they're tough to find, especially ones who can devote to doing something on, on a regular basis. And I know for a fact that that was the same issue that the Reno News and Review had for many years. They would just get these kind of wacky personalities submitting some of the columns and it just it just didn't work. Yeah, that's one of the things that I am thinking of for this podcast is I don't want um, I don't want it to be overly partisan or political. I would like to speak to people with different political views than myself, um, but I don't know who um, in Reno would want to come and talk reasonably about some major political issues. Um, so it's a challenge because I know that there are kind of very right wing figures in Reno who would probably love to come on a podcast and, and, and talk about politics, but I don't want to give a platform to people that are, you know, talking about election lies and these kind of like anti-mask, like whatever, those are not the conversations that I want to have. So I, I feel you on the challenge of how do you have those conversations and how do you find people that are representative of the political spectrum without undermining your ability to have a, you know, a factual conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's very tough. And to be fair, it, it comes from the left too. Although in the last year, it was far more coming from the, the right and the conservative groups. At this point, I don't think we have any, reg- I could be wrong, but I don't think we have any regular columnists. I mean, we had one guy who was very smart, very nice guy. You know, I really like him as a person, but he was sending us stuff that was just, I mean, there was this, this is one thing about beans, some brand of beans that I guess the the owner of the company was a very Trump type person. And he was basically trying to make the case that the local Raley's were not covering or carrying this brand of beans because the guy, the company was owned by a Trump supporter. Well, Kristen, our editor just called up Raley's and said, Hey, why do you not carry beans? I said, Oh yeah, we haven't carried that brand for a number of years. And he was this, our column was trying to, was trying to make the case that it was like this newfound ban on by Raley's or what, and maybe it wasn't Raley's. Forgive me if that's not the right grocery store that was not carrying this brand of beans, but it was just the most bizarre thing in a quick phone call squared up the issue. And I'm like, we're not going to run a column that's based on bullshit conjecture like that. I don't care where it's coming from. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, it's the whole kind of like cancel culture narrative being applied to a, a local situation, a local store where there's this assumption that it's, Oh, someone's been offended. So they're canceling and they're, uh, calling for boycotts and and all that when, like you said, sometimes it's literally nothing. Yeah, it was literally nothing. And and after a, you know one too many of those, you know, where we were just like, hey, you need to support this with facts. Basically, is kind of how we were coming back to these folks, and they couldn't they couldn't rise to that that, in my opinion, very basic challenge. And I think that's really indicative of how how low the political narratives were were getting last year. I mean, really just, just crass, angry, stupid, not grounded. Just, I mean, the, the amount of people that called us fake news, I'm like, if you even knew what went behind trying to fact check certain things versus your, your own cheap, easy opinion, you, you know, it might be eye opening <laughs> for somebody to, to realize that we strive to actually check facts. We get different perspectives on an issue. Um, we try to wrap it up in an appropriate, relevant context. And for somebody to come along and just they don't like it and then they call it fake. I mean, it's, that's just so um, you, I just can't even have a conversation with somebody like that, frankly. 
It's not, it's not even worth my time. Fine. You think we're fake? Okay. I was going to say, I, th- I think it's frustrating that there is less engagement with the actual content and more of this automatic, like put a wall up. Oh, it's not the new site I normally listen to. They're saying something that I don't want to hear. So I'm not even going to engage with the the argument at all and just call it fake news or call it biased or whatever. And I, uh, it's unfortunate that local news sources fall prey to that just as much as probably the national news does. Well, I, I would say it's not the local news sources falling prey to it. It's the people uh, viewing news with kind of this really short-sighted perspective in that they have fallen prey to uh, really just kind of nasty false rhetoric that supports whatever vision it is they're trying to follow without even bothering to check basic facts. I mean, I, I had somebody on Facebook a few months ago, you know, basically sort of recite, this is in somebody else's comment, you know, sort of recite some weird conspiracy thing. And I just said, look, factcheck.org has debunked this. And this person responded, well, I didn't, uh, it was really weird. It was like, I I asked you to check the facts, not go to the fact checkers or something like, just like completely dismissed. the. I was just like, my God, I cannot even disengage with these people. I mean, it was just so fucking stupid. I was like, are you, are you even human? <laughs> yeah, I've seen, I've seen that before where people accuse the fact checkers of being biased and then you can't even check the facts because then they say, oh, well, the fact checkers are, are lying too. And there's, there's no real answer. I think when people are committed to this idea of the thing that I believe is right. And the thing that you're saying is wrong, there is nothing that you can say that will change their mind in that case. What do you think the, the path out of that is like, how do we fix? I know this is a huge question to ask, but um, how do we fix it? What's, what's the next thing that we can do to, to make these things better? Well, first I want to, I want to say, I don't, I do not, enjoy uh, being in the position to moderate content. I find that fundamentally antithetical to a lot of the principles behind journalism, the First Amendment, and this, that, and the other. However, the flip side of that, this craziness run amok in the last year, I think has shown us that the amount of mis- and disinformation that was getting significant amounts of airtime ended up being ended up having far more real world consequences than than me banning somebody from our Facebook page for being a knucklehead. So I think the answer, whether I like it or not, or frankly even agree with it, is to deplatform Donald Trump from Twitter. That that was very beneficial to this country, frankly. I think that it's worked. If you look at the the last month or so since he hasn't been on Twitter, we haven't had these daily outrages. We haven't had the the I heard or read somewhere that the the amount of misinformation on Twitter in the weeks following Trump being banned, it dropped significantly because people weren't sharing the misinformation. So I think that there is evidence that it actually does work when you take blatant disinformation off a platform. Yeah, so stuff to me that is just a medically inconsistent, anti-verifiable science or fake science, stuff that is just ragey, crazy, none of that is welcome on our platforms. Like I said earlier, we removed our comment section. I got two complaints about that, one of whom was from somebody who was impersonating 
uh, a medical doctor out of Southern California using a Yahoo address. The most bizarre thing. And you're complaining. You're not even a real, you're not even showing us who you really are. So I kind of have been forced to be iron fisted about those particular things. Um, you know, if people could just behave themselves like, like adults on social media, that would not be an issue, but we don't really see that. So yeah, it, it, it really means just not letting people have a voice on your platform, which again, I'm not comfortable with, but I'm also, I'm, I'm probably uh, more uncomfortable with the alternative, which is that people are spreading just blat- blatantly false information, you know, especially when it comes to COVID, no oh, masks don't work, you know, bullshit. You know, that's been demonstrated over and over and over. I was going to ask you about how COVID has affected This Is Reno, because I would imagine that people are looking for more local information around things like vaccines. And there's, like I said, these national issues have local effects. And have you seen more interest in the local news over the last year? People have more time to consume the news. People, I think, are paying more attention to the news. Has that, uh, the last year, been affected? How's how has that kind of affected this is Reno? Yeah, it's been affected uh, uh, may, in may, very major ways. Number one, you know, March 13th, I, I almost remember it. I want to say it was a Friday or a Saturday when we were basically sort of placed in a like, okay, we're now going to have to seriously quarantine from this thing. I honestly thought we were going out of business. I thought I was had maybe a month of, of money in the bank to, to pay the freelancers. And then I thought, that's it. We're done. This is going to dry up. Our advertising revenue is gone, this, that, and the other. Knock on wood, we got an emergency grant for $5,000 from the local, oh, I forget their name, local journalism foundation in partnership with Facebook. So this is actually Mark Zuckerberg's money. I'm I'm almost positive. After that, uh, I believe in April, we got another $80,000. And that saved us. Uh, Those two grants saved us. Moving into the latter part of the year, I was then relying on advertising contracts. Knock on wood, again, uh, this was another sort of indirect source of income was the CARES Act. Uh, We did some campaigns with uh, uh, various entities, the city of Reno, not Washington County directly, but through one of their subcontractors. So those campaigns really helped us. And then political advertising. So knock on wood, we, we came out of 2020 uh, in a very good position, the best, probably the best position we've been in. That's not to say, I mean, if, if, if COVID two happened next month, we, I could easily be in the same position I was a year ago and, and being ready to fold up shop. So that's how it affected us uh, financially. The other thing that happened was by, by the time we hit April 1st last year, our website traffic, traffic had tripled and has basically remained consistent throughout 2020. People were desperate for local news sources, desperate for information about COVID-19, desperate for information about when does this quarantine end? What what does this mean? You know, this, that, and the other. It was, I was shocked at what happened. I, like I said, I honestly thought we were done by March 1 of last year. I thought this is Reno's gone. No more. Leave the archives up and it's done. But we were able to persevere and kicked ass in 2020. (laughs) We went through a lot of hell. I mean, one of our reporters, Don, was assaulted. We were spit on by people in Douglas County. We were obviously, I think I've mentioned, called fake news more times than I could count. Flipped off, harassed, sent threatening messages. People 
pulled their subscription or said they would not resubscribe to us because they didn't like certain stories we did. We uh, were threatened with litigation at least twice, maybe three times last year. So last year was a year from hell, frankly, even though we grew tremendously. Yeah, well, my hope is that with a new administration that we'll have obviously less of this anti-media rhetoric coming from the highest office in the land and maybe some of the 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 heat will get turned down a little bit regarding how people view the media. I mean, that's obviously very optimistic. I think that people are pretty dead set in some of these opinions about who's right and who's wrong. But I do think that more broadly as a culture, hopefully with new leadership, there will be less of that uh, adversarial relationship between the administration and the media and people will kind of tone down their, you know, their hatred of the other side, especially as it relates to where they get their news. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful. I think we've seen it already. And and I want to be clear, I consider myself a media critic. I'll read, new, you know, sometimes news stories. And I'm like, this sucks. You know, this person didn't even do their job, their homework. And some, some of the same crit- criticisms we get. So I, you know, I, I don't, you know, if people want to criticize us and they, they have a legitimate beef, you know, hopefully I don't shy away from that. But a lot of what we, I would say 90% of what we got in 2020 was just people just being belligerent and not very smart. And it was strange. It was surreal. Some of what we saw. (laughs) So, but yeah, I'm optimistic too. Yeah. Well, the the other thing I was going to ask you about, um, and I brought it up briefly is since you are familiar with a lot of people, maybe you don't know everyone in town, but you, you have a, I'd say your finger on the pulse of Reno generally, uh, as a new podcast host, who, who would you want to hear me talk to? Like what kind of guests should I have on the show as someone who's done podcasts, someone who knows local news? Um, I am, like I said, not trying to be overly political or focused on any one area. And I also don't, even though it is a Reno podcast, it's called Renoites. I'm talking to people from Reno. I don't necessarily want it to always be Reno news specific, but I do want to talk to people in Reno who are experts on something or who care about something interesting or who are doing something important. Uh, so what kind of guests do you think would make um, a good fit for, for a show like this? What's your, what's your thought? Uh, less white males. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, I will, I will tell you that I, I have a concern as soon as I started this podcast, I said, I do not want to be another like two white guys talking podcast because there's a lot of those. And I do think that Reno has this richness of diversity and there are so many people, um, with much more to say than me, like a relatively basic white dude. So I appreciate you bring that up as, as the first thing for sure. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, as they say, the, you know, it, it's, it's a very salient issue. There are underrepresented groups and populations in this community and frankly, you know, and throughout the country that uh, have been historically uh, marginalized in mainstream media or media in general, in politics, in, you know, uh, employment situations. And I think us as white males, we're not attuned to that in the, to the same degree, perhaps, that somebody who lives that day in and day out. So I would say seniors, people of color, people doing interesting things on the ground, uh, whether it's arts or activism or politics, you name it. You know, I, I mean, I could throw out some names to you, but I'll let you do that on your own. You know, it, it's a very important, very real issue. And I'm not sure this is Reno's been the best platform for people of color, for example, or, or seniors, 
you know, people just who typically may not have the, the same voice that, you know, us older white dudes have or have had. And so that would be my suggestion. And it sounds like you've, you've already <laughs> thought of that. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I would say lacking of, there's a lot of people who don't, in my opinion, lack uh, credibility in terms of who they are and what they do. But I'll let you decide, you know, who, who that might be. But, you know, just find your, your hidden champions. You know, we did a, a piece at the end of the year and, and I, sort of the idea was who are, who, who are Reno's quiet heroes? And they're the delivery drivers. They're the, um, the teachers, the people who work in schools that aren't maybe not are not teachers or counselors, but yet keep the, the operations going and keep the computers up to date or whatever. You know, they're quiet heroes. Um, they're the people in politics who maybe have never gotten elected, but they're obviously very engaged in local issues. The artists, business owners, small business owners um, really generate, in my opinion, and they really kind of make this, this economy stay afloat. And I think those people would be interesting, very interesting to hear from. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think that uh, that kind of aligns with a lot of what I was hoping to do is talk to people from a, a wide range of of areas. So not explicitly political or not ex- all business people, but touching on all of those things that kind of shape what Reno is. So the people that are involved in the arts, the people that are involved in business, the people that are involved in politics, um, and that are, like you said, kind of on the front lines and on the ground level in Reno that, that know what's going on. So I, I hope that I can find uh, a lot of people who have good stories to share and, um, and something that they're passionate about here in town. So I was super glad to have you as the first guest because you are obviously working on something that's really important to the city. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Perfect. Well, I, I know you said that you have to go um, relatively soon. I, I ran well, well over the time that you said originally, so I won't, I won't keep you too much longer. Um, but thank you so much, Bob, for, for coming on the podcast and, and talking to me. Uh, I really appreciate that we were able to get into not just this is Reno stuff, but also talk about music and, you know, kind of um, the things that make Reno what it is. Um, I think it's a such a cool city. I'm super grateful to have grown up here. Uh, growing up in Reno, I was like, this place is so boring. It's so lame. Like, I can't wait to get out of here. But after living in a few bigger cities, um, I found that Reno is a fantastic sized city. There is plenty going on here. It is interesting. It's engaging. It's growing. It's changing. And without all of the burdens of that kind of really big city stuff, uh, it's a very livable city. So I really appreciate being able to talk to, uh, to local folks who are, who are playing a, a pretty significant role in it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Good luck with the, Yeah. Good luck with the podcast. I can't wait to hear it. Hello again, Renoites listeners. Thank you so much for joining me for the first episode of Renoites. That was a ton of fun. Bob was really great to talk to. I'm so glad that I had a first guest who knows Reno inside and out and had a lot of fun stuff to chat with me about. So thank you again, Bob, for coming on the show. Listeners, I have a couple favors to ask. This is a brand new podcast, so I need your help in a couple different ways. First and foremost, I would love to hear your feedback. I want to make sure that I am talking to people you find interesting. So shoot me an email. My email address is Connor, that's C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. Let me know what you thought of the show, what guests you would like to hear, and hopefully we can make this podcast a valuable source of information and conversation with all sorts of people from the Reno area. 
Secondly, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. It should be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, I'm new to this and still figuring it out, but hopefully wherever you listen to podcasts, you're able to subscribe. And if possible, leave me a review. If you enjoy the podcast, I hope that'll help people find us. So find us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, give us a good review and check us out next week.